Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah. This is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today we are talking to Mary Smiley. Mary is a farmer near Davidson and a leading member of the Treaty Land Sharing Network. Join us as we talk with Mary about sustainable agriculture, methods of reconciliation, and allyship. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Um, Can you give us an explanation of what the Treaty Land Sharing Network is and how it got started? Okay, so the Treaty Land Sharing Network uh, arose as a counterpoint to the terrible racism that all of us in Saskatchewan observed firsthand with the acquittal of Gerald Stanley, the farmer that caught, that shot Colton Bushy in the back of the head. And when he was acquitted uh, four years ago, um, I'm sure like others in this province, you could just feel the tension. The, you could cut it with a knife. It was so extreme. So that was in um, 2018. He was acquitted in February of 2018. And in 2019, Ian McCurry, my husband and I, were invited to a session at uh, Wanuskewin in Saskatoon, where they these five young women had uh, put together this idea of the Treaty Land Sharing Network. And this first encounter was with people who hold title to land. So I say it like that because as settlers, we we hold um, simple title to land and the opportunity to share land is, is one of those things that we could easily say yes to. Anyway, so the first meeting in February of 2019 was just to check with settlers, you know, how this would, would flow in their world. And then that group um, went on to meet uh, with settlers and indigenous potential indigenous land users in the fall of 2019, and then in 2020 they jo- uh, they asked me to join the coordinating committee. So by then we were the group of seven uh, women on the um, coordinating committee, and in 2021 we launched the Treaty Land Sharing Network. So as I said, it was created as a counterpoint to the shooting death and subsequent acquittal of the farmer. And as a, a counterpoint to say that not all of us in rural Saskatchewan uh, are afraid of First Nations people. And, and we're, we're working, we, we come together to begin the crucial work of honoring treaties. So I'm just going to say a little bit of what I've come to appreciate. And I'm turning 60 this year. And I've only come to appreciate uh, our 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 role in treaties. So treaties were signed between 18... Uh, 71 and 1877 for the numbered treaties in Western Canada. And they were covenants. They were promises made between Canada and the crown and first nations um, in, in the presence of the creator for first nations people. So from that point of view, it's a covenant and the treaties intended the numbered treaties. The intention was always to share the land that farmers could farm to the depth of the plow 
and Indigenous people would be able to carry on their cultural practices and gather medicines, rocks, hunt, and share the land. And that's what the Treaty Land Sharing Network is all about. It's just trying to honour treaties as they were intended. Very neat. Uh, you mentioned that you are, maybe you didn't mention, but I know that you and your husband are farmers uh, with livestock. Can you tell us a bit about your operation? Sure. So uh, we live on um, land that was originally settled by uh, Ian's great-grandfather and his brother and his cousin. And then as over time, we're, our kids will be the fifth generation farmers on this land. And uh, over time, we've acquired other, other people's land over time. So we call it McCreary Land and Livestock. And so we have both grain, um, grain land, we grow crops, as well as uh, we have livestock, which include cattle, goats, and sheep right now. Um, yeah, so we grow peas and lentils and canola and oats and barley and wheat. So we're pretty busy. Yes, a busy time of year for you folks. Mm -hmm. So you guys have a pretty wide variety of crops and obviously you're utilizing quite a bit of land. So what would kind of, what would the idea of the, the treaty land sharing network be where like what kind of land do, do would would there be access to? Uh, well, we've, we're really prepared to share any of our land for um, Indigenous land users as treaty intended. And to date, we have not been uh, overwhelmed with requests. We've had a few land sharing events here. Um, the first one with one of your former guests, uh, Dr. Kevin Lewis. He came as our knowledge keeper to a land sharing event that we hosted here at Bladworth in 2020. And the, the part of that story that I really like to tell is that uh, Kevin Lewis was with his mother and his grandmother, uh, both delightful women. And uh, it was really windy that day. And it was the beginning of the pandemic or it was in the first summer of the pandemic. So we had 40 or so people here and you know, you're, the whole effort of moving people from point A to point B and they all have to be in their own car. And so we decided just to use this little piece of land, Michael, you might recognize it, the one with the windmill. It's not very far from our home property. And so we had everybody meet out there. And because it was so windy, uh, Dr. Kevin Lewis and his mother and grandmothers just sort of huddled in a copse of trees. I would call it a slough. We were on just this 20 acre pasture that we use for our cull cows. So the cows that are going to go to market in the fall, their last year. And so I'm just trying to describe this in a way that says, as a farmer, this is not our best land but it was just really convenient for us to get 40 people there to do this land sharing event. So they're in, they say, go check out this 20 acres and, um, and then come back. And in the meantime, we'll look around here in this little slew of trees. So we came back and in they between his Kevin Lewis, his mother and his, and his grandmother, they had found between 30 and 40 different plants of either medicinal or spiritual interest to First Nations in this little tiny copse of trees out of the wind. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think, you know, just like in kindergarten, sharing, if you thought about having to share your toys, you got all anxious and all sort of upset and crying and all those sort of things. So sharing is hard, but also in kindergarten, you learned that sharing also has so many intangible benefits that you can't realize until you do it. Mm. 
you, uh, I think you've solidified yourself and I've, I've been to an, um, one of your treaty land sharing network events um, with my class and with a few other classes too from Saskatoon area. And um, you, you have quite a bit of experience now being an ally when it comes to the truth and reconciliation movement. But can you, can you maybe say what, what's, what's kind of been at the forefront of, of what's made you uh, an ally to this movement and, and how you kind of go about conducting yourself in this? I, I, think, mm. I think some people are apprehensive to talk more about uh, reconciliation. And actually, it's a topic of one of the seasons this year, uh, or sorry, of the season this year, too is how how can people be more of an ally in this and i know that you've done um yeah quite a bit of work and that, that's talking to indigenous leaders who i know have worked with you in the past too i kind of, I kind of think it's what all our responsibilities are in terms of um it's kind of the rent that i think we should pay, we should be prepared to to pay in order to be good citizens in this wonderful country that we get to the privilege to live in so um it's going to take all of us to improve the relationships that have been so fractured for so long. And I, I think I'm an ally in training. Um, I am really quite sure that um, all the privilege that is around me, I don't necessarily see. Um, so I, I don't, I, I seek to be a good ally. It's, it's a work in progress as I think all of us should, should be. Um, I'm a, my, my introduction to myself is usually I'm a nurse by training and a farmer by marriage. And uh, early on in my career, I, I was planning to be a, a nurse in northern Saskatchewan until I married a farmer. And there isn't a lot of agriculture opportunities in northern Saskatchewan. Um, and as a result, I've, I've had the privilege of being either a guest or a, or a consultant or a nurse on a variety of different First Nations communities. And what, when the Treaty Land Sharing Network invited me to be part of their coordinating committee, I sort of had to pull all these ideas together and say, well, what can I contribute here? What, what's, my, what's the possibility here? Well, I think very simply, again, it's my privilege um, that there's very few of us in rural Saskatchewan that have had firsthand relationships with um, First Nations people, Indigenous people. And, and I'm lucky that I've had some wonderful relationships with First Nations people. So it's, it's easy for me to, it, maybe it's easier for me to say, this is, this is so rewarding. This is such the right thing to do. Um, and do not be afraid. It sounds like you, yeah, you have a unique life experience that, that suits you well to this organization and your role. It's a pretty new organization. What and you talked about an event that you've had at your property. Can you share some other um, successes or failures, I guess, or challenges mm -hmm. that have been going on? Well, um, Michael was referring to Mike was referring to uh, an event that we held, one of our our hosted uh, land sharing events. I'm just going to back up a little bit. That so when I or any people hold title to land. Um, sign up our property for land sharing as treaties intended through the treaty land sharing network. Um, information about our land goes up on a website and in, potential indigenous land users can, you know, see, oh, there's, there's land at Bladworth that has hunting and berries and, and rocks and, you know, the opportunity to walk the land. 
So I'm going to call that number and see that it's safe for me to come today. So safe could be, you know, that we know that we're they're there or if we were worried about any of our neighbors giving anybody any trouble. Or, for example, if they're going hunting and the, you know, we have cattle out on that particular land, you know, in electric wire. So that first call is about that. But what we've found over time, yes, the tree land sharing network isn't very old yet. It's only two or three years old. But we have very few um, Indigenous land users using the land. And what we're told over and over and over again is with brown skin uh, showing up at a rural property with brown skin is just too dangerous. And a lot of Indigenous folks just don't believe this is real because the level of racism in our you know, urban and rural areas in, in this province, it's just been so long and so hard. So it's gonna take some time. But this summer we had a land sharing event because we've been told as a, a coordinating committee that in order for indigenous folks to really see this in practice, we need to host things. So we held one just near Delisle and Mike's class and a few other classes, classrooms from Saskatoon came to the event and um, also the, um, the mother and brother and sister to Colton Bushi, which was a surprise to me. And at the end of the event, um, this family shared with us that they were at first very apprehensive about coming to this at all, didn't imagine that they would ever be on a farm property again, and said that the whole experience had been um, very healing for them, which, you know, beyond my wildest dreams of getting involved in this, if I could do something that helped um, Debbie Baptiste, Col Colton's mother, in any small way, then that was totally worthwhile because she went through a horrible time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, slightly switching topics, but it's going to come back to this. Um, you and Ian have, have been pretty active in attempting to lower your carbon footprint and nitrogen footprints. Um, can you explain the path that you've taken to accomplish this? Yeah, I'm just going to preface these comments by saying that Ian and I, I mean, there are many, many topics that are, are worthwhile uh, working on. And we've decided a few years ago that we would focus and finish, that we would, you can't boil the ocean. And so let's just focus our our energies on two things that really matter for us. So the two things that really matter for us are reconciliation of relationships with First Nations moving forward in a good way and to reduce uh, the impact of, reduce our uh, nitrogen footprint, our carbon footprint in the world. So with, if we're switching gears to that bit, we're doing some stuff both personally and, and professionally as farmers. And so on a personal level, um, we're not flying as much as we used to, which is very sad because we really like traveling. Um, and we are you know, being much more cognizant of our carbon use. We were in Norway a few years ago at a museum, um, the Museum of Petroleum, where they showed everyone's carbon footprint per capita around the world. And Saskatchewan's is just terrible, terrible, terrible uh, relative to most other places in the world. If, can if Saskatchewan and Alberta were a country, we our carbon use is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so that was insightful. So we're doing what we can. We got solar panels four years ago, uh, and then uh, we started, Ian was invited to be part of this uh, organization called Farmers, Farmers for Climate Solutions. Uh, 
And as a result of being involved in that, and really that was just in the last couple of years, he became aware of the hazards of nitrous oxide uh, in farm practices. So for those of you who aren't as, um, aren't farmers, what you need to know that most grain farmers, most of the grains we grow requ require some supplement of a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer to produce the yields that we have come to both um, depend on as a world in terms of having enough food, but also in terms of um, maintaining our production so that we can continue to farm in, in somewhat of a profitable way. So uh, we've become quite dependent on nitrogen fertilizer. And the more you pour in, you know, the, the higher the yields. And so th this has been going on for quite a while. And it's only recently that farmers become more aware that overuse of nitrogen fertilizer when it's not being used by the plant, um, I can't remember the chemical term, but it, it, it diffuses off into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide. And what you really wanna do is uh, make sure that you have the right amount of nitrogen applied to your crop at the right time, um, right volume. And you know that's, that's the ideal on so many levels, but with agriculture and in, in, in large crop farming, you can't know whether it's going to rain or not, of course, right? And you can't know whether it's going to be too hot or not hot enough to grow those plants. So you don't really have a perfect way of determining exactly the right nitrogen to apply. So we, um, to, to try and mitigate some of that, we've hired a company and there's a whole bunch of these companies now that will come in and map your soil for um, conductivity to tell you sort of the, the, the amount of nitrogen that would be optimal for that kind of soil type. And they, they augment their, they truth tell their, their, their mapping through um, actual soil tests. So now we have equipment that applies the seed and it can vary the rate of the, the nitrogen fertilizer based on those maps that get fed into our, our, the computer on our, our uh, seeding equipment. And so then we're applying the nitrogen most appropriately for that soil type. But it's still making, trying to make a prediction on how much rain you're gonna get. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a real gambit. So, but overall, we are trying to reduce our nitrogen fertilizer use. And the other thing that we've, we've come to appreciate, which we were kind of doing already uh, anyway, was to preserve wetlands. So, you know, that slew I was telling you about that Kevin Lewis was in. Well, you may notice when you're going down the highway, a lot of uh, farm practices these days are to plow down those tree sloughs uh, and sort of fill them in because the equipment is getting so big and the cost and the overuse of nitrogen and seeding and stuff to go around those things uh, is also a, a concern, right? So, um, but what we've come to appreciate is those trees or those grass or those wetlands are tremendous carbon sinks and really important for mitigating the environmental damage that we, we, we need to turn around. So I think those would be the big ones that we're working on. That's fantastic, yeah. I think um, I've been reading quite a bit about um, farmers lowering, and I know the federal government has come up with a plan that they wanna target lowering uh, agricultural emissions of nitrogen emissions by 30% um, by 2030. Um, and I know that there's been a bit of, of uh, resilience in the farming community 
uh, and I think by the provincial government here too, um, to kind of accept those goals. So would, would doing what you're saying and kind of trying to map these out and just figuring out kind of the best practices, is that kind of the best way of reaching these goals or does it have to be something more extreme if they're gonna actually reach those levels? Yeah, this is more Ian's file than mine on knowing you know, how much is, is required. Yeah. Uh, I think the resistance though is, um, like I think, I think we have to be careful to give people some time to understand, which is the time that we needed to, to understand the impact of something that we came, that we've been doing for a really long time, right? Uh, we have been applying nitrogen fertilizer. All our, all our neighbors have been doing this for a really long time. And it's how the bottom line of farming is that you have to still make enough money so that you can do all this again next year. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not a simple, you know, sl- slash those things, do these measures and, and make it happen. People need time to get their head around this. And this is all pretty new. I think government setting targets is important. I think people reacting to government targets is not um, unusual. Mm-hmm. And if uh, people can remain curious and interested and, and perhaps the government's target is right, but they've missed some key measures or key ideas that also could be implemented. So I think it's like anything that uh, we need governments to sort of lead the way and to help us get there. Um, But if I were to, you know, I were to rule the world, (laughs) I might've, you know, set, set out the targets uh, or set out the ambition in more consultation with actually with farmers across this country. And in specifically, let's just look at prairie agriculture. It's very different than BC agriculture, which is very different than maritime agriculture, right? So you'd have to break out the zones of different agricultural types across Canada and invite what I would say is like citizen farmers to say, okay, so here's here's the burning platform for change. Here's the problem with nitrogen ox- nitrous oxide that I just described to you. So let's explore solutions and then let's figure out, you know, by consulting with your neighbors, the best path forward. The people don't, nobody really likes change except for the baby with the wet diaper, right? But all of us, if we're able to um, drive the change or help to shape the change are much more likely to be behind it. So, you know, yes, there is, there is some pushback right now on those targets. But I think that's pretty normal, and we'll we'll figure it out. That's an interesting answer. I think there's a lot of pressure on agriculture and farmers to be producing food for the world too. And so, I've heard the that we're giving the conflicting messages of change your farming practices, but also there's more people who and we need more food and um, putting that pressure on yeah. producers. Yeah. This this relates to both what the work that we're doing in reconciliation with First Nations as well as the the whole moving forward. I think there are some habits of thinking, habits of communicating and habits of decision-making that just become the underlying culture of any group of people. So let's take this farmers and, um, and needing to feed the world. So we have a habit as farmers of saying, Oh, 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 you can't touch us. You know, we're feeding the world. The problem is too many people. Well, you know, I think we just have to lower that. We have to recognize that those ideas are 
And there are things that we've been saying for a really, really, really long time. Habits of thinking, habits of communicating, habits of decision-making. And I think we have to check our data once in a while. I think we have enough food. I've heard the population actually is going down. We're probably at the top of it right now. And so if those are, those are called mindsets, right? They're cultural mindsets. And it's just like within reconciliation, I have this cultural mindset that as a settler farmer, this is my land, that nobody should ever try and trespass it, for example. Well, really? My land? Can I really own land? I mean, I can, I can hold title to land. I can farm land. But, I mean, the deers, the bees, the birds, do they really care who owns the land? I don't think so. I can't own water, nor should I ever think that I should own the water. I'm not even sure that I should think that I own the land. I have access to this land for farming. And what we have as an opportunity within the Treaty Land Sharing Network to behave as treaty people is to share the land as treaty intended. And Indigenous people have access to the land, to the land for the same thing. And it, it doesn't need to be in conflict. We can share the land and still do everything that we need to do with it. Very neat. I often teach about the powers of farmers, in, especially in Saskatchewan, but in, mm -hmm. in Western Canada especially. And I talk about um, possibilities of farmers really changing things on an environmental level of, of helping kind of guide us through the, the climate crisis as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm always interested to hear your thoughts on it because um, you you and Ian and your family have been, have been advocates for this kind of work for a long time. So I guess, what would you see that the role that farmers can, and maybe already they are in a lot of cases, but what, what role can farmers play in the kind of transition to sustainable practices? Yeah, well, once again, I'm not sure that I would just hold this to farmers. I'd rather go just to generally as humans. What can we do? Uh, it kind of comes maybe to your last question, like what's the world that you want and what would you change? I want that world for everyone. And so what can I do as a farmer to reduce my carbon footprint? What can you do as a teacher to reduce your carbon footprint? What can I do as a farmer uh, to increase my relationships, improve my relationships, improve our the status of First Nations and Indigenous people in this in this country? And if I can apply that to everything I do, then I can be the change I want to see in the world. And I think from my, my world, my, no, my experience, that as I talk to about the things that matter to me in my neighborhood, yeah, I might get people going, hmm, I don't know what she's doing. Well, that's Mary, or she's kind of green or, or whatever. But I know every time I do something or I... I communicate something to my neighbors. I'm having an influence. It's called the social influence theory. And I really have come to believe that that is a key thing in moving us forward. It's actually sort of the basis of our democracy. If we can um, be prepared to hold a, a view because you've decided that this is something that you know, makes the world a better place. I am also open to somebody trying to convince me otherwise that my view may be wrong. It doesn't mean that I have to hold it dogmatically, but I have to be prepared to put my oar in the water and say, this matters. We have to do this. Absolutely.
Yeah. I think that is important. And Mary, it is good that you say, like, I, I, I think as I try to teach climate change, I always bring it. I try to make, uh, maybe I do segregate people into categories too much. Like farmers have to do this. Politicians have to do this. Kids have to do this. Teachers have to do this. But yeah, I think that is a good point that it is a collective effort. Maybe the more that we, we seg, kind of segment ourselves, then it, that is going to be a problem for, for how to fix this global, this global problem. I can just tell you a story that I found really interesting. So my work as a nurse was I was working in community and improving the healthcare system here in Saskatchewan and sort of preceding the, the big change to the surgical, no, sorry, the, the, the main change that we were working on was improving the flow of care for women with breast cancer. And I was facilitating one of the first conversations among and between the different physicians that are involved in the care journey of women going through breast cancer. And uh, one, one time at the beginning of, during one of the meetings, one of the physicians said to me, lady, you keep talking about a system of care. And I gotta tell you, there is no system of care. <laughs> There's just a whole bunch of people doing, doing work. I can tell you now that the system of care for women with breast cancer has really, really improved. But the next meeting I was in with this, this group of people, everybody was able to show up except the surgeons. And we were mapping the whole journey of care. And when we looked at the map, you know, we had this sort of blank spot, you know, surgery happens here, but there was no surgeons represented in the room. And when we went for, looked for the opportunities for improvement, uh, you know, this is probably not going to be a surprise to you. Everybody identified, well, anything that happened in that black hole of surgery, that's where all the problems were because there was nobody there to defend it. So I, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I think that we as, as our brains want to sort and quantify uh, contributions. And there's value in that, right? We can say that 25% of greenhouse gas emissions come from industrial agriculture. It's important to know. It means that if that's that burning platform for change. And agriculture needs to do everything it can to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions. But the whole greenhouse gas emissions is still a society global issue. And so all of this needs to be done. And I think for podcasts like this, what you are trying to um, convey to the world as individuals who have taken an interest in your podcast is to say, okay, well, you as a citizen, I want to say, you as a citizen have both individual responsibility as well as collective responsibility. Is your collective responsibility related to the fact that you farm at Bethune or is it you know, a collective responsibility because you're educating young minds uh, as a teacher. I don't know. But, you know, I think we have the, both that individual and collective responsibilities. And I am, again, back to the social influence theory, I am quite convinced that as more of us are acting our way into a new way of thinking, is what I call it, then that's how our democracy gets richer. I think that's how you let politicians know that this matters more than anything else and you, you just keep keep the pot boiling that way because that's how this is supposed to work it's a beautiful uh, inspiration and things for our listeners to think about um and and at the end of our podcast we, we always have a little debrief and i don't know if you've listened to any but we uh, talk about things we've taken away from the conversation oh. with our guests and so i think you've given our listeners some things to take away from this conversation too we have a couple of questions we always ask all of our guests. Um, and one of them is, is a totally different topic. 
sort of. Um, what is your, where is one of your favorite places to visit in Saskatchewan? Well, I, my answer to that is anywhere where there's a really great place to walk or to ride my bike. I really like riding my bike. Um, so, you know, in Saskatoon or Regina, there's the, the bike trails along the lakes or the river. Um, I live between Long Lake and Lake Diefenbaker. Uh, I love to go over to Lake Diefenbaker where the golf course, I'm, I'm a terrible golfer, but I love to walk on the golf course there. Um, yeah, we have so many beautiful spots. I, I also really like paddling. And I don't know what it is about paddling, but just, I think it's, it's a bit of the noise and the rhythm or something, but yeah, I have a sailboard that I can't maneuver because I'm not quite big enough to pull the sail out of the water. So I've turned it into a paddleboard. Um, but I'm just about 60. So I also have a little cushion on my paddleboard. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I paddle at the Creek Dam or, yeah. Or on little sloughs here when the water table's higher, higher. So there's so many just, just places outside. We're so lucky to have so much fantastic air and nature so close by. I always like the examples of places that are close to home. So I, I feel the same is that there's so many places that I can enjoy that are in my backyard or mm -hmm. close to my, in my nearby area. The pandemic really provided that as an opportunity to learn more about what's close by, didn't it? I feel like you cheated on that answer, but I agree. There's lots of great <laughs> places. <laughs> yeah, we were just out. I was training my students for their canoe training for the year. Mm. And yeah, we went out to a little, we we're going to do their tipping in a little pond. And it was a pretty gross pond, um, but we did it there. And even then, I'm just like, it was such a nice day. I'm just like, it's a great pond. Every time I go there, I'm like, I hope I never fall in. <laughs> but this time, the kids are jumping. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Anytime you can be out there and get nice weather. And yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of great gems in, Sask or in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. Mary, I kind of feel like you've already answered this last question. But um, let's just do it for the record. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Well, I can't change the world. I can only change me. and. So I want to be the change that I want to see in the world. And I think the best opportunity at that is um, to recognize that every choice I make matters, whether that's smiling at somebody or saying hello to somebody in the grocery store, to reducing my greenhouse gas emissions, to trying to figure out how to make rural Saskatchewan safer for Indigenous folks or, you know, whatever, whatever is your, the thing that brings you passion to move forward in a good way. Um, that's the world I want. I think you're living that really well. Doing my best. Yeah. Well, Mary, um, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate you taking time. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Nice to hear more about your podcast. Mike, do you have a takeaway from our conversation with Mary? Yeah, I really like the points that she was making about um, oftentimes when I'm talking about climate change with my course and with my students and people around me, I do um, like separate like, okay, let's talk about what agriculture has to do to solve climate change and like reduce their things. What is, 
you know, transportation industry, what do cities have to do? But I, I think it, it needs to be a, a collective effort and it needs to be seen that way and viewed that way so that we're not putting all this pressure on one demographic of people to solve what is a global problem. So I really liked what she said about recognizing the problem, but then how we all have to work to help facilitate change in that area. Leah, what do you see as a takeaway from this conversation with Mary? My takeaway is similar to yours. I appreciated her comments on individual actions and collective actions and the idea of living my own life, or as she said, tr said she tries to do in a way and how you want to see the world in the future. And so how just every action that you do uh, contributes to sort of the direction of the world, which in some ways I was like, oh, that's a lot of responsibility. Um, but I think it's also something that I will ponder over the next while um, and, and make sure that my actions are in line with how I want to see the world. Mm -hmm.